You're listening to Growl at GreylockGlass.com. This episode is an example of one of those long-delayed decisions that have really dogged this news organization. For five years, I've worked to earn the trust of, of you, my audience, while simultaneously trying to earn the respect of the local arts and culture elite. Now, I love the arts. You know, I have been into theater and music myself in another lifetime. Uh, I'm a little bit into fiction writing nowadays. I'm definitely enthusiastic about the visual arts offerings available in the area. So it only made sense that I'd cover the arts scene. But that's where the local gatekeepers wanted it to stop. Along the way, I discovered that if my reportage started delving into uncomfortable subjects and unflattering views of the lovely, lovely Berkshires, people in that clique of self-appointed power players were going to scratch a little mark next to my name in their address books. If I came down on the side of the struggling, unwashed masses of working stiffs like myself, and that's working stiffs of all colors, mind you, too hard or too often, the Greylock glass, the dial, uh, yours truly would not be on the A list or even the B list. I never meant to let the, the desperate, very real revenue needs of this newsroom put this show on the back burner, at least not consciously. Now I, I realize that the constant low-grade anxiety I was feeling over the risk of pissing off potential advertisers and donors caused me to do the exact thing I swore I'd never do. Self-censor. Yeah, I just admitted to that. And only now that I'm actually saying it do I realize how sick the thought of it makes me. I don't even want to look at myself in the mirror, frankly. Sure, I have covered a few controversial topics. And sure, I've pissed off a few officials, politicians, maybe a business owner or two. But the news coverage that I produced was really nothing outside the window of what should be average journalistic courage at any local news outlet. And I mothballed the show that got me the most excited to talk about you know, the big issues. This one, Growl. And I am totally disgusted with myself about that. Fortunately, every day is a new day, bringing fresh outrages to address, new corruption and sleaze to confront. And I still have this microphone. And enough of my First Amendment rights to call it like I see it, so that Growl can pick up right where we left off. And now that I know that I'm not going to get any support from the elites around here anyway, I can take the attitude that they can go fuck themselves. And I realize now that I'm grateful that they didn't throw me a bone on the regular. I get to see them for who they really are. And I'll be keeping an eye on them, with press creds in my pocket and a very sizable chip on my shoulder. So let's fire up episode number six of Growl. My guest is Sonia Bukowski, Berkshire's delegate to the Democratic, uh, the Digital Democratic National Convention, critic of the corporate control of politics, and two-time supporter of Bernie Sanders for president. Sonia, welcome to Growl. Thank you. You mean the nonvention? Yeah, I just got <laughs> the, back from the nonvention. That's right. The nonvention. Happy to be here. 
happy to be here. Well, we appreciate uh, that that you are uh, that you made it through that. That was a uh, that was a weird and surreal thing. Not as weird as the Republican National Convention. That's really weird. Um, but uh, but the DNC had its own its own shindig uh, in its own special way. Why don't you tell us what you were doing there and how you found yourself as a delegate? Well, I was a um, I was a big Bernie Sanders supporter and a big Bernie Sanders volunteer. We had many in the Berkshires, um, and I, uh, you know, I learned about the process at some point. Now, let me just back up a little bit because I think this point, sure. this piece is important. Okay, I actually had left the Democratic Party for five years and went to be a Green because a friend of mine pointed out to me ideologically, really, I'm a green and I just don't know it. So anyway, I had left the party for five years, became a green. And then here comes Bernie, right, running as a Democrat. And uh, I really uh, felt like this was a politician, like unlike any I had seen in my lifetime, who actually wanted to take on the interests that have taken over our country. And anyway, so for a lot of reasons, I was I was down with Bernie. So when 2016 happened, and by that, I mean, you know, Podesta emails, primary rigging, blatant, blah, blah, blah. All of that, right. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that little thing. So I, I actually, um, you know, I really grappled with whether or not to rejoin this party because, you know, it was pretty clear. And as in a court of law, it stated they're a private club and they can do whatever they want. So, but I'm watching Bernie who's saying, you know, if you want to change what's going on in this country, you have to participate. You have to do things like run for office. Change always happens from the bottom up. So I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take that to heart as far as the Democratic Party goes. And also the Democratic Party that I grew up with, that my parents were a member of, was not like this party. And I want that party back. I want the non-corrupt Democratic Party. So I rejoined the Democratic Party and I will I will be the first to say I am an insurgent there to transform it back to its FDR roots. So That's how um, I got back into the party. Then, again, after being so involved with the 2016 and 2020 campaigns for Bernie, um, I also got educated a little bit more on the processes for things like becoming a delegate. I knew nothing about that. Um, And so I learned about that. And and to be honest, had it not been for COVID and the selection of uh, delegate process being virtual, I probably wouldn't have been a delegate because I think it's been 30 years since they've had the, the caucus to choose national delegates in the Berkshires. They always have it in the Springfield area. And the way it works is you basically need to bring people along with you in person to vote for you. So um, the only person I found in the Berkshires who had ever won was a guy who had actually filled buses with people and brought them to Springfield for, you know, to <laughs> vote for him. So anyway, that's, that's a little of that background. I was lucky. COVID happened. Uh, I have a lot of support from people who knew me and uh, I just basically was elected virtually. So that, that's kind of how I became a delegate. Got it. Now, when you say bring it back to its its sort of FDR roots, um, you're talking to certainly uh, pre-Clinton era days. Um, the Clintons, uh, I, I, I would say the Clintons, because it was, it was them after all who said that we were getting two for one uh, when Bill got elected. But um, <clears throat> the Clinton administration in the 90s, um, Actually, before it even was the administration, when it, when Bill Clinton was running, uh, they realized that there was a real, um, real, real chance that the Democratic Party was becoming unnecessary, 
irrelevant. Um, as the economy started to change, as uh, the world became more globalized, and they really made it a point to sort of shift the party toward this this third way of of really appealing not so much to its its working class roots, but instead to Wall Street, to um, to the pharmaceutical industries, fossil fuel industries, the financial uh, financiers, um, and that continued to change throughout. Um, the 90s and the 2000s, and then, of course, even throughout the 2000 teens, uh, certainly after the, the, the banking, the, the Wall Street crash of 2008. Um, where are we today with what the DNC stands for? Who are they, who are they standing for? And, and what, what are their policies? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> They're not standing for me. I know that. Um, look. Both parties, I think, you know, yes, you're right. It goes back a long way in history when, when, you know, we started to go rotten. But certainly since Citizens United, both parties are completely just, you know, bought. I mean, now it's legal to buy your own party and buy your own politicians. So, hey, why not? So they're all owned, as you just said, they're all owned by these corporate uh, giants. They're, uh, they are not interested in um, the will of the little guy or in the working class people anymore. Um, that's pretty clear. And so, uh, you know, what does the DNC stand for? You know, when you're in the belly of the beast for the convention, and, and again, this was virtual, so probably, I don't know if it was a little better than what the delegates in 2016 went through, because I, I was protesting outside the uh, convention center in Philly that year, and I heard from a lot of the delegates what was going on inside, none of which was pleasant. Um, but my, my experience this time around was, okay, so the convention is the highest order, the biggest meeting of delegates from this party that happens every four years. And here I was, a first-time delegate who was told, eventually, took them a while to tell us this, no, you're not going to go to Milwaukee. Nobody's going to go to Milwaukee, which, frankly, I would have put on a damn hazmat suit to <laughs> go to Milwaukee because you cannot participate in the democratic process virtually, at least not 4,000 delegates. It's just, it was not possible. Um, so what wound up happening was a lot of the business was done in these little meetings online with the platform. There are like three big committees, the rules and platform and credentials. And Anyway, most of that stuff was done, the business, actually before the convention started. So usually that happens during that four-day period. So all of that was kind of done beforehand. My role as a delegate was pretty much the only role I had to do was open up an email with three items in this electronic email and cast the ballot for one, who to nominate for president, uh, two, whether or not to support the platform, and three, um, uh, what was the third? Oh, whether or not to keep the Unity Commission decision to keep superdelegates from voting on the first round of, of um, ballots. Uh, continuing into 2024, which, by the way, even that last item was somehow shifted so that superdelegates did vote on the first ballot. There's, they, you know, they have a tendency to change the rules a lot. And basically every four years they can change whatever they want. And so they basically said, well, if another candidate doesn't have, I don't know, something like 25%, then gee, superdelegates can vote anyway on the first ballot. So they, you know, even when they say you've, you know, kind of had a win, they usually will lop it out from under you anyway. That would be um, the moving the, the goalposts. Uh, you know, yeah. Perfect yeah, they, example of that. 
they love the Lucy with the football. They love that. Love that shit. Just, you know, go ahead, have a kick. Yeah, move it. Anyway, um, I did want to backtrack to the platform because the only, the only thing that made me feel like I had any real significant contribution this time was the fact that the Nevada delegation put together a resolution that basically said, we delegates in looking at this platform and seeing no strong language for universal health care coverage for anyone during a pandemic are going to vote against. We're going to take a stand. We called it draw the line. Medicare for all now, draw the line. And we just took a stand to say we're not going to vote for a platform that doesn't include Medicare for all this time around. And that movement, um, there was a lot of organizing and a lot of work on the part of a lot of people involved. But that movement garnered a lot of support. Um, in the end, and, and let me just say, when I say in the end, this was the number, we had to basically, you know, twist arms to even get the official totals of who voted for what from the DNC. Um, seriously. They, so the, you, the word, transparency you, does not exist. In that's this what I was going, that was the word I was looking for. So really, yeah. you have to just take it on their word that that these results are, are valid. And there is no independent monitor there. Well, even. No, they're not an independent monitor. Eventually, we got them to actually show the figures because, see, this is the thing. It's not nothing that is voted on the convention is supposed to be considered secret ballot. All of this is supposed to be transparent. There's no reason. So what happens is usually, at least my experience, you badger them for a while and you might get somewhere. And in this case, because we had so many delegates kind of badgering at them, they did finally release the tally, which I think was so out of about 40 I think total 45 or 4,600 delegates that voted, and I think that might include super delegates. Um, 1,069 had voted against the platform, and I think there were about 87 that abstained. That's a pretty good chunk of your delegates <laughs> that are voting and saying, you know, yeah, we're really feeling strongly about this, you know, this this healthcare crisis that's going on right now, and we want you to pay attention to that. Um, anyway, so so so. Um, now, on my on my level, in my delegation, let me also say, so as a delegate, I'm sitting there going, okay, I'm, I'm learning as I go. I'm learning that one of the things you do as a delegate is organize with other delegates in order to accomplish things. You, you, you know, you kind of whip people around, you know, you, you try to garner support. So my first, I thought, obvious question was, okay, where's the contact information for the other delegates in my delegation? And the party starts telling me, you know, this is mass dumps, starts telling me that, oh, we have privacy privacy policies against releasing information. And I'm just going, okay, wait, so this is my own delegation, people with whom I need to work, and you will not release their own contact information to me, to each other. Yeah, it's against, and, and you know, I had to ask again, again and again and again, so where this policy come from? Oh, it's like an office policy. I go, okay, well, it's a bad policy. We need to change it. Uh, to date, by the way, I have not gotten an answer to any of my questions as to how to change that. Um, but in any event, I just sort of was like, okay, so you should, you should provide everyone contact information and then ask for people to opt out if they're not comfortable with that. But anyway, you know, this was all my learning curve of just finding sure. out how, how corrupt and, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and how they function. They function by putting everything in a little silo and not letting people sort of, I mean, guess you're, I guess if you're at high levels and, and really in the belly of the beast, I guess you can get information, but, but that's one of the ways that they, they keep things running the way they do is to just keep you sort of blocked from even being able to get information. So, yeah, it, I mean, I mean, so, so it's, there is a game and there are rules and you don't know necessarily what those rules are. 
but you're supposed to continue to play that game. And if you run afoul of the rules, which may or may not actually be an official rule, you basically are supposed to just be a good little delegate and just not make not not make waves. Oh yeah, no, they they do not like any boat rocking whatsoever. And it seems like the name of the game for the establishment Dems are let's just play cover our ass. That's the game. Cover our ass. No matter what happens, we're just gonna you know. We're, we're going to do what we want. We're going to do what our corporate sponsors want. And we're just going to cover our tracks on whatever we do along the way. That, that pretty much was my lesson learned with the DNC. So what, what did they do along the way? What, uh, at the end of the day, what, what, in your opinion, came out of that convention? Anything that we can be hopeful about? Oh, you know, <laughs> I hate when people ask me that. Um, you know, we, we Trump is a sociopath, and we need him out, right? I mean that that I will agree with that piece. Um, yeah, we need him out. Um, but I also think that what needed to happen at the convention is this party needed to convince people that we were here to help them, particularly the people who right now can't put food on the table, might not have a job, don't have health care, or it was connected to their job and they lost it. Now they have a kid at home because hey, COVID, they can't send them to school. Anyway. Everyday people right now are struggling so much that I really wonder how many of them are going to think on November 3rd to even go vote because you've got other stuff on your mind. So what I think we needed to do at this convention was excite people to the idea and make them, you know, believe that the Democratic Party really cares about you and they're going to do something to make your lives better. So, so yeah. um, do I do I feel like we left with that? I'm not. I'm just going to say I'm not sure. <laughs> Let's say I'm not sure. Well, we know um, we know what uh, they they did remove <laughs> um, any condemnation uh, of the fossil fuel industry from from the platform quietly. Uh, I think they said oh, that it was God. it had been added it had been added by accident originally, and it wasn't supposed to be there anyway, which is an odd thing to say. Um, we couldn't get uh, nearly the the college you know uh, paying for uh, you know college uh, you know four years. Um, we couldn't get uh, certainly Medicare for all, and Joe Biden is still, you know, keeping his his digging his heels in the in, saying that if Congress should pass, even if it should unanimously pass a Medicare for all bill, he's going to veto if it if it crosses his desk. So this, yeah, I keep hoping that he backs. I keep hoping that he wakes up one day and says, "Well, there wasn't a pandemic going on then, so maybe I'll change my mind on that one." I keep hoping for that. But let me just mention one other thing. There were some resolutions that probably you didn't catch wind of uh, that were also put forth to increase the transparency of the party. There were resolutions that were put forth to say things like, "Hey, we're going to be transparent about where the money for this party comes from, the finances, and we're going to change things up so that everything that's done is done in a very transparent way, and so that, for instance, the people who are chairing high, you know, high up chairing committees, they are generally right now appointed, or I call it anointed, by like the DNC chair." Right. Well. You know, the democratic process says the people at the bottom should be the ones that are kind of, you know, have something to do with voting those people in. Otherwise, you're just a, you're just a yes man who's going to do whatever the chair wants. And that is not democracy. So when that when those resolutions about the transparency came up, do you know who the party had argue on their defense? It, it was like corporate lobbyists that were arguing in, in, in the defense of, no, we don't want resolutions about transparency. 
So anyway, we could be, it's very clear who, who owns this party in this moment. And we, we, we desperately need to have people take this party back. If you are a Democrat or you were a Democrat and you're listening to this, for the love of God, do one thing for me. Join the party. Don't dem-exit. They want you to dem-exit. Join the party and join me in being a thorn in their side, enforcing them to use parliamentary processes and democracy and transparency again. We need more people to join in. There's a great organization called People for Democratic Party Reform that that is their focus. Their focus is to teach us the, the ways that generally you can get kind of shut out of meetings and things and, and shut up pretty quickly. And they're, they're teaching us all the procedures by which we can actually make some headway rather than, because I don't know about you, if you've ever been in a meeting where somebody's just kind of gaveled the meeting closed before you could even speak. I mean, I've had experiences like that more than once. So anyway, let me, let me just say, um, don't give up on the party. It's time to join it and to change it. And I know some people say, well, you can't change corruption. But yeah, I think you can. It's just going to take a while, but we need as many people as possible right now to jump in and try and help. Okay, well, let me play uh, devil's advocate before we move on to <clears throat> more local issues. Um, I'm just going to play devil's advocate because I I did uh, in 2000. No, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. In, in 1996, maybe? 90. No, it would have been 97 or 98. Um, I had the pleasure of, of, of seeing Michael Moore speak, uh, mm-hmm. and he. Um, he made the same argument that you're making in that uh, he said that most communities, um, you know, most uh, committees, local committees have very few people who show up. If you got your friends, he said, you get a dozen of your friends to show up and vote on important votes, uh, sort of, you know, commando style, get in there and vote. Uh, you could take over that local committee with, with no trouble at all, because these are, as you said, they're, they're organizations that don't really want participation um, and right. they don't really they don't put it out there because they kind of have this club and they want to stay exactly the way it is. It's kind of like junior high school and high school, a lot like that, actually. Um, and they yeah. use some of the same juvenile tactics, except that there's big money on the line. So that I understood. I believed it at the time. Um, except that, as you point out, it is a private club and they can change the rules at any time. So with that in mind, let me ask you this. Why not go for what so many countries in Europe have? They have many parties. Uh, you know, they have, you know, at least, you know, five, six, seven viable parties. And those parties end up making coalitions because they realize they need each other. It's clear that the DNC does not want the progressive wing anywhere. Uh, in, in, ice, in ear, With an earshot, they don't want uh, them participating. They want to shut them up. They, oh. they basically, as you say, want to kick them out. So what... you're, you're, being, you're being really nice on that one. You're being really nice on that one. Yeah, uh, they're, I mean, just look, just look at what's going on right now in uh, the local race. Well, with, uh, I, I want to get to that local. I want to get to that okay. local race. I just want to say, yeah. you know, I've got uh, in the can, uh, I have, you know, actually in the chamber, I have an interview with Howie Hawkins. I spoke with Howie for an hour Great, great thinker. He's really, really uh, a sharp guy, uh, sharper than a lot of people who've been running for office lately. And, um, and you know, why not have a, a third party, fourth party, fifth party that is so full of, you know, progressives that the Democratic uh, National Committee has to negotiate, has to um, 
Good. And the answer, the answer to that is we have a two-party system, and it's a lot easier in other countries to do that. Believe me, I, I am all for the idea of a third party. Um, and again, I was, I was a Green for a number of years. I desperately wanted the Green Party to hit, I think it's 5% in yep. the general election yep. time around, and then they would get to be, I mean, imagine you have to win your place to even be on a debate stage in this country to even have anyone see or hear from your candidate. To get matching, um, to mean, get this, matching funds. Yeah, this, yes, the matching funds. This system is so rigged against the third party. Now, there are a lot of people I know who right now are joining in a uh, movement for a people's party, um, as, as well as switching to green and, and others. I, you know, I wish and hope that someday that can win. But, but really, the whole system is rigged against that. And I think that's where Bernie was, why he ran as a Democrat. So there have been times I've thought, especially after 2016, then 2020 rolls around and I go, Jesus Christ, Bernie, you're going to run again as a Democrat. What the? Um, anyway, why? So I, I held up a sign uh, when I saw him shortly after everything went down in 2016 and it was done. He was out. I held up a sign right in front of him in the rally that said, be what you are independent. So, I mean, even to have somebody run as an independent, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how that one works. I don't know if, if you would be on the debate stage and such. I'm not sure, but well, I, that I would, just, that would be up to the network. I mean, you know, that would, that would be up ah. to the network and the two parties because the two parties, well, the parties have to we'd agree. Be totally screwed, we'd be totally screwed then too, because you know, the, the media is all owned by the same, what, five or six conglomerates now. And uh, you know, just everything's been monopolized. And I mean, the, the biggest thing that hurt Bernie was the media narrative, Bernie's not electable, Bernie's not electable. So even though Bernie's got all the money and all the volunteers and all the backing behind him and, you know, Latinos and all these other groups, that was the narrative. Bernie's not electable. It's a myth that was just made up by mainstream media and put out there so many times because, as, as we all know, I mean, Trump is a master of just repeat a lie long enough and people will start to believe it. So, yeah, and yeah. that's the and, problem with the third party. We're not going to have coverage. Now, here's the cool thing. The cool thing is, in the Bernie uh, movement, I saw a lot of younger people. And, you know, everybody says they don't vote, whatever. I don't know about that, but I saw an awful lot of them that were in this movement. And the good news is that younger generation do not sit. Because I've also, I've also observed my, my parents, for instance, who are in their late 70s right now. They sit in front of like MSNBC, CNN. My father thinks he's well-informed because he also watches Fox, so he's getting both sides of the story. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but you're still watching mainstream media. It's all mainstream media. And they all have a script written for them in the morning. And, and I, so I, I've learned that I think why the future of this party lies in, in the younger generation is they get their information from other sources. They're going on the Internet. They're, going, they're watching podcasts like yours. They're watching, they're watching The Rational National and The Rising. And, and they're young reading posts. The Intercept and... Yes, Intercept, yes, Intercept, thank you, we're going to head there, because the Intercept does an amazing, has done an amazing job the last month or so, and I, I want to commend Ryan Grimm for where we're heading, because sure. um, I'll right, tell well, you. Yeah. Last, last question before we turn to that, because I know that that's yeah. the subject that is, that is the, you know, the outrage du jour, but just, just in your, you know, you've, you've been watching politics for a long time, you've seen a number of campaigns. Um, we know where we were in 2016 in the polls. Right now, in 2016, uh, Hillary was way ahead. Trump, uh, there was no chance. There was just no chance, and it stayed that way uh, all the way up to the night of the election or the, the morning, uh, the night before the election. 
and then the world the world shifted on its axis and things got real weird real quick um well for some for some people yes but you know who you know who kind of had an idea about that people who were making phone calls to voters because i was making phone calls to voters hundreds thousands i have no idea i made a lot of phone calls that year and i would ask people as a volunteer hi i'm a volunteer for the bernie sanders campaign wondering you're planning to vote yeah great but do you mind me asking who you're thinking who you're going to vote for well i'm thinking about bernie then again, I'm thinking about Trump. The first time I heard that, I thought, what the hell? This is like the light and dark side of the force. How <laughs> can you possibly be torn between these two? But you know what? I heard it again and again and again. And I did not feel confident like other people did that Hillary was going to take that and walk away with it. Um, because that's what you need to do. And there was one pollster, by the way, who got it right. One pollster who said that he thought Trump was going to win. And when people went back and interviewed him later, they said, why do you think you got it right when no one else did? And he said, well, here's why I think. He said, I polled the same people over the course of six months or a year, whatever it was. He said, I kept polling the same people. And basically, they felt like that they had a relationship with me. And because of that, I think they told me the truth. Because a lot of Trump voters last time around did not admit to people that they were going to be voting for Trump. Right. They, they right. were closet Trump voters. They wanted something different. And there was no way, you know, Hillary was just like another establishment person and everybody was pissed off with Washington, didn't want more of that crap. You had, you didn't have Bernie anymore, who was not like the others and everybody was, or a lot of people were excited about. And then you had Trump, who was just, again, not like the others. So they just went for, that was a screw you Washington vote in, in my mind. That was everybody saying, we're tired of the bullshit and this is what we're going to do. We're going to vote this joker in, this game, you know, talk show host or whatever, reality show host. So anyway, um, yeah, so, yeah no, I, and I, do not believe polls. Don't believe polls, people. And don't be complacent thinking Biden's got this in the bag this time. He does not. No, it all depends on, on uh, a lot of things such as like how many times they let him open his mouth um, and, <laughs> and whether or not whether or not they debate at all. Um, I cannot imagine a debate between Biden and Trump ending in Biden's favor. Yeah, I can't. I, I cannot imagine <laughs> uh, what, you know, it doesn't even matter whether one of them tells the complete truth and the other one is nothing but lies. It's not yeah. it's not going to look the optics are going to be awful because, I mean, the only thing I can imagine is Biden going down on the ground and challenging Trump to a, a push up contest or an arm wrestling contest or whatever. And and. Ah, yikes. Um, yeah, it's, and, it's nothing. It's nothing any Democrat should be looking forward to. And, and Trump is going to Trump is going to yeah. wheelhouse. That's yeah. his wheelhouse is being able to just stand there, say anything. And if I had to predict, I would say he's just going to stand there and lie. And Biden's going to call him a liar. And that's going to be the debate. You're lying. You're making things well, up. That's the debate. Well, that's see, here's it. the thing. We already know because we've already seen some of the ads. We know that Trump is waiting to pull out the the I marched with in the civil rights movement uh, claim from Biden, he's he's going to pull out the um, Biden's I was the top at the top of my class in law school. I graduated with three degrees. I all of these things that he yeah. has been caught for lying that he had to right. end he had to end his 1988 campaign. Because yep. he was caught lying so many times about so many different things. And you know what? This video of all of that and Trump is going to the Trump campaign is going to just crank out, um, you know, 
smear ad after smear ad, and there's nothing that the Biden campaign is going to be able to say. What, he didn't say that in 1987? He didn't say that in 1990-whatever? And, and by the way, my favorite is cutting Social Security. You know, there's like four videos of him over the years doing that, uh, trying to cut Social yes. Security or tap it. Yeah, uh, it's not going to be pretty. There's not going to, you know, we don't have a lot. I mean, look, it is what it is. Um, it's who we have. It's sad. I, I sometimes lay in bed at night just saying to the universe, just bring the highest and best for all involved here. <laughs> Well, I don't I, specify yeah. what that means. I just say whatever the highest and best for everybody in the world is, sure. please make that happen. And and let's make sure we all stock up on popcorn because we're going to need a lot of it before by the end of the of this thing. So let's oh, let us let popcorn's us... nice. Cannabis and cocaine is what I would need to get through those. <laughs> anyway, so we've we've got a local. Um, we've got plenty of reasons to be outraged right here in Western Massachusetts. Um, we have a, a, a an upstart, a young whippersnapper, uh, the mayor of Holyoke, Alex Morris, who is challenging 16-term incumbent Richie Neal, uh, who actually hasn't hasn't represented the Berkshires that entire time, uh, but uh, he's he's been around the block uh, and around the block and and around the block, so. Um, why, first of all, do you would you assess that uh, Alex Morris thinks that unseating Neil is a good idea or, or needs to be done? And tell us a little bit about where we, how we got to this weirdness this last couple of weeks. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. What was the first part? Of that? I know that was kind of big. Just, just a, have the weirdness. Okay, so we <laughs> have the weirdness. Well, I know. Oh, <laughs> why? Why does? Morse think he should unseat Neil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Neil is a corporate shill. Neil is Neil is my representative, okay? This is a representative, if you want to call it. That is a word that I don't even use to describe him. This man, after Trump got in, there were a lot of calls for town halls. This man would not come near, I don't know where he was, but he sure as shit wasn't in the Berkshires. I mean, we were, the only way you could get Richie Neal to come to the Berkshires, and this is not a lie, I swear to God, throw a parade. That's the way you get Richie Neal to show up in the Berkshires. You have to have a parade for him to march in. Other than that, he has no interest in coming out here, and he has no interest in representing the people here. I mean, come on. The guy takes more corporate money than anyone in Congress. Anyone. Do you think he cares about you? <laughs> he doesn't, I know he doesn't care about me. Um, this is a man who takes more money from the pharmaceutical industry and then does things like, you know, Zaps the surprise billing, the, the legislation that would have ended surprise billing. Um, you know, he's, he is bought and sold, capping drug prices. You know, he nixes anything that will cost his owners, his corporate owners, money. Um, so I, uh, I applaud Alex for stepping up um, to run against him. I uh, think he probably just is a person who, you know, just basically saw, you know, as, as – I mean, my first criteria for voting for anyone is, at this point, no corporate funding. So I think he just probably looked at the situation and went, this guy, you know, is not representing the people here. And I think I could do a better job of that. And he cares. Um, and I think he just, you know, it's not an easy decision to run for office, I'm sure, even in a, <laughs> even what is not the shit show this has become. Um, so anyway, I admire anybody that steps up and runs because it takes a certain amount of courage to even do that. But with Ilhan Omar, uh, you know, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, they really did sort of pave the way for this race uh, just two years ago. 
Yes, and you need and thank Justice Democrats uh, largely for that. Justice Democrats. The Justice Democrats started. I went to a meeting of theirs like I think five years ago, like when Bernie's first campaign was starting, and I basically went to this room in Albany and they said, "Okay, we're starting this organization, and basically we want uh, people to run for office, and we're going to help train you, and we're going to vet you, and we're going to hopefully finance uh, help help with financing, and but we we're not going to take any corporate money." And so I, I just want to mention, I think I think that's a large part of the success for a lot of those candidates. And yeah, I mean, uh, Richie Neal, after seeing Elliot Engel and after seeing uh, Joe Crowley, these people who've been in office as long as he has get taken out by young progressives, he's probably shitting his britches. Yeah. Stepped up. Yeah. So, he, he's I mean, he had his path uh, nicely you know, laid out for him for the next ooh, probably maybe eight years, maybe 12 years at the, at the max, and then he could retire and, and sort of, you know, rest on his laurels or, or let yeah. rest on other people's laurels, really. Um, yeah. So so anyway, so we've got Alex Morrison, and I, and I should have mentioned Ayanna Presley as well uh, from Boston, though it's interesting. Yeah. She does not side with the, the, the rest of her squad members uh, as often as people thought she would, but she's still a pretty strong independent voice. Um, so Yeah, and, and, you know, just, just to say also, it takes, as I said, it takes a lot of courage to run. It takes a lot of, um, also takes a lot of fortitude to be in office under the pressure that these people are under to conform and to bow to the ring of the Democratic Party and do, you know, have them do their bidding. It takes an awful lot to stand up to that. So, yeah, you know, AO, AOC, yeah. AOC mentioned that on her very second day in office, she went to an orientation and was surprised. It was kind of like a, um, it was kind of like a job fair. For for yeah. for college students, and there were all of these corporations there, basically, trying to pitch you, trying yeah. to dollars get... for dollars. Yeah, and it's and it's like r- right out in the open. So right. anyway, so so uh, we've got Alex Morris. He's going up against uh, 16 term uh, incumbent Richie Neal, also who has brought home a lot of uh, weapons money, a lot of uh, military industrial money uh, to the Berkshires. So they love him there. At uh, Raytheon and and uh, General Dynamics and, and other other smaller corporations, um, so everything is going along pretty swimmingly. Uh, he's starting to get Alex is starting to get ahead, although he's not quite assured anything yet. Um, and then a bomb drops. Talk to us about the bomb. Okay, so what is this now? About three weeks ago, that suddenly um, suddenly you see the story. And here's the amazing part: you see the story come out about this little district in Massachusetts on CNN, on like every huge media outlet, even international. This story went international. And what's the story? The story is that Alex Morse has done inappropriate things with, with college students and that, um, you know, he's, he's basically being crucified, although everything was kind of vague and there wasn't really any victim. Um, he suddenly, you know, we see these stories about how he's taking advantage of and abusing his power as somebody who does lecturing at a college and yada, yada. Yeah. So we're probably all familiar with that, <laughs> which, which one must say immediately, wow, interesting timing that they came out, what, three or four weeks before uh, voting here, that this yeah. story happened to come out. And, and, if, anybody and doesn't, uh, if anybody doesn't know, a lot of this has to do with uh, the app, I think it was Grindr or Tinder or some, some dating app. That he was yeah, using. Several. I think he used several. And, so, so basically, yeah. here's, a, here's a guy in his late... I think Alex might be 30 now. Maybe. Um, maybe. And so maybe. Maybe he's 30. Yeah, The youngest so mayor... Here's a, Go ahead. 
yeah, he was, he was, he was, um, he won his first mayoral election when he was 22. Yeah. And he's been in for eight years. So anyway, he's in his like late twenties, maybe 30. So yeah. So basically, um, the best coverage I saw this was on the rational national. So basically Alex, um, gets on these dating apps, which is pretty much what people in their twenties do nowadays, I think. And he, he puts the information in about, you know, what he's looking for, whatever, and a geographic range or whatever. And so he's near Northampton, Northampton, which has, I think an entire population of like 37,000 and 23,000 are college students. Hey, guess what? Alex gets matched with some people who attend the college. Now, none of these, none of these people are his students, but he gets matched with some people from the college and apparently connects with at least one of them. And uh, so that was, so that story then turns into this, oh, he somehow is some kind of uh, predator is, is what the story that they put out was some sort of predator who's like cruising the school for, you know, dating opportunities. That's, that's, I'm, I'm not going to give that piece of the story as much, no, as much no. time, attention or detail as it doesn't deserve it. But anyway, so that's, yeah, I think probably most people heard that piece. But so, the timing um, is amazing. And the fact that it came from one of, one of the party's own. Yeah, well, this is, so this is the thing. So this part, so then you look and go, where did this story come from? The story comes from this like young college Democrat group that put this, decide to write a letter to Morse saying he made some people feel uncomfortable. And they, they, they print this in like their collegiate magazine. So first question is, how does a little story like that in a collegiate magazine even get worldwide attention? How does that happen? Okay. Anyway, um, what we have learned since then, and I have to, this is where I have to say Ryan Grimm from the intercept did an amazing job with investigation. And also he had, he had some people in prominent places, clearly feeding him information. And he gets a hold of things like the actual chat of how this whole thing started. Turns out the conversation about this started back in October. So, so this is like what, are we having September now? Um, back in October last year, this guy, Timothy Ennis, who at the time was the president of this little young college group, and now I think he's the chief strategist, apparently he, um, there, are, there are chats that, that Ryan Grimm got copies of that basically have this guy saying, yeah, you know, um, I think that I'm going to take this action to try to smear Alex Morse to derail his campaign because, frankly, I need a job, and I think I'll be able to get an internship with Richie Neal. So... And this is all documented. Okay, go look it up. I encourage anybody. I don't know if you can. I'll, do it. I'll link to the link. to the article in the show notes in the Intercept. Okay, so there's there's like eight articles at least I think from the Intercept that, that chronicle all of this. So this kid decides to do this and uh, basically says, "Yeah, kind of kind of sorry I had to drag the chapter into this, but oh well, you know I'm looking yeah. out for myself." So we we find that. Well, bad enough. Bad as that was, <laughs> and as as bad as that was, then. We come to find that these, these college kids, when they went to write this letter um, that basically was, was, you know, indicting Morse, they called on the Democratic leadership here in Massachusetts for help. Like, oh, give us some guidance on this one. Okay, now, the Democratic Party has some real strict rules about interfering in primaries. Okay, I mean, I'm the chair of my little local town committee. We have rules where we are not supposed to endorse or interfere with any primaries between Democratic candidates. So 
the fact that these kids would call our leadership, our chair, Gus Bickford, our executive director, Veronica Martinez, and ask for advice and actually get advice, and not just get advice, but apparently uh, they referred them to Jim Roosevelt, who is one of the, I guess on a volunteer basis, he is one of the party attorneys. So they refer him to him to actually get help in composing this letter. Which is part of a larger <laughs> battle plan. Oh, oh yeah. Well, I mean, if you, so if you're want to do some digging, you can then look, look at where Richie Neal's money comes from, look at the pharmaceutical money, and then look at, look at Jim Roosevelt and what he does for a living, because he's actually a consultant in the healthcare industry. Um, let me see. He, I had just pulled out his bio, but basically, uh, he advises, Jim is a legal counsel that advises healthcare payers, providers, trade associations, associations, and service providers on business matters, legislative, and regulatory issues. So anyway, let your listeners connect the dots on that one. Um, but it is, it is absolutely mind-numbing <laughs> that our leadership would involve themselves in this. Um, and so now... Um, you know, we, we find this out. And, and one of the Intercept articles even reported that the executive director uh, directed the college students to get rid of evidence, <laughs> to get rid of the communications, because that's what you do when you're innocent. Yeah. <laughs> Have somebody well. destroy the evidence, of course. So it, it just gets, it gets deeper and uglier the more you look at it. And it's one of those moments where I go, okay, this is why I am, you know, I vomit in my mouth a little bit at the idea of being in the Democratic Party because of things like this. Um, you know, I don't want corruption in my party. Uh, I don't want. And, and the saddest part is it seems like they've been operating the way they operate for so long. They don't even seem to recognize how god awful it is when they do it. You know, it's almost like this is just normal um, operating procedure. Well, it's so, great thing. I mean, once you get a bunch of people together in a room who all have a little bit of you know dirt on their hands, um, they're going to say, you know, gosh, do you think you think it's okay if we shred these documents? Well, I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, you know, they do say, like an old car, you, you don't want to just let it sit in the garage. You should start it every once in a while. So really, we're just giving the old shredder a workout. That's that's really all we're doing yeah. here. Oh yeah, yeah. And they'll yeah. nod their head and they sh you know they shake each other's hands and then and then they do the deed. And uh, all of a sudden, documents disappear. Uh, paper trails are, are lost. But this and you is, know, yeah. even if you don't, even if you, I don't. Know, I guess what I want to say is. You, you don't even, wouldn't you want to be careful enough not to even have the appearance of doing something wrong? I mean, I mean, if I were in those positions, I would be concerned about even the appearance of something inappropriate, let alone just, you know, going full tilt, you know, and just said deep, deep dive in. So anyway, um, yeah, those are some of the things that have come out. And, and disturbingly, um, because again, as I said, worldwide media on Morse, you know, supposedly being a predator, but this story? Um, how many places have we seen this story? I will say the New York Times finally ran something on this a couple of days ago that also said something about Morse being attacked and vindicated. That, that's the first time I've seen any uh, mainstream media outlet, I think, that actually uh, has done that. Uh, the Intercept, of course, did. But um, yeah, so it's, uh, and, and I will say this, I've, I've seen some emails between some people at the state level that have basically said our chair, um, feels like, feels strongly like, 
the Boston Globe will never report on this. Um, hmm. I mean, basically came out in an email and said, yeah, we don't need to, need to worry about that. So, um, so I'm, my mission in the moment is to, you know, sort of, I'm sort of rallying Democrats to just say, look, you know, if you are also somebody who doesn't want to be in the midst of this corruption, if you would like to do something to, you know, to, to, if you want something to change, you actually have to speak up. This is a moment to speak up. This is a moment where you say, look, you can't change what you don't acknowledge. So we need people to acknowledge what has happened. We need them to somehow, you know, make changes. So this does not happen again. Um, there and are various ways. And you've gotten some yeah. traction. You've gotten some traction in your efforts. So, um, so this, so the, so I forwarded you a letter that basically said, uh, so there was a letter written by the first, the first group, Democratic group that came out really vehemently against what happened, the smears against Morse was the Bay State Stonewall Democrats who wrote a very strong letter that um, also included the history of attacking the LGBTQ community in this manner. That, that this is, you know, would this have happened? We don't know if this would ha have happened to someone else, but here's a young gay man having this attack. Uh, and they felt very strongly. They, they came out with a letter immediately. And then um, basically another letter came to be that said, we stand with the Bay State Stonewall Democrats. That letter circulated through the uh, Massachusetts State Democratic Committee. And uh, last I heard, more than 50 people had signed on that. Uh, and there is a version of that letter that is also um, going to all the uh, the Democratic town and, and ward committee chairs. And so uh, I am in the process of trying to help. I signed as a chair. I had my committee get together and vote on whether or not to you know, sign off on this letter, which we did. Um, and yeah, we're just trying to basically have Democrats who give a shit um, step up and say, you know, this is not okay. And they're calling for an independent investigation because usually the person that would investigate such a uh, such a situation is the chair and the chair is involved. So that means what, what the chair got Bickford. So we, we also were asking for an investigation before September 1st, because we wanted it done before people had a chance to vote because, you know, the damage is already done to Morse, but we felt like the least we could do is have this investigation and have it resolved before the first, which was, there was no way the party was going to let that happen. <laughs> but, uh, what they did was at least Bickford said, okay, we'll have an investigation, but he wanted it. He, he I don't know if he assigned the investigation to his two chairs and his personnel, uh, personnel director within the party or whether they were just supposed to find the outside investigator. At this point, so many people have called for an independent investigation that I think they're looking for an outside uh, investigator to look into this matter. Aye, aye, aye. So that's kind of where we are. So you've gotten quite a few signatures. I know that the effort has also managed to uh, perhaps help bring around, I think it's eight Pittsfield city councilors uh, who've come out in favor of, of Morris and against this, the smear uh, campaign against him. That was just yeah, in, in the Eagle. So, and the Eagle of course is, is, has endorsed uh, Neil, uh, but it's good yeah. to see that at least they are still reporting on, on the fact that eight of the city councilors are, are in favor of, of Alex Morris. Um, the Eagle tends to come down on the side of some pretty hardcore centrists. Um, and that... yeah, I gotta be honest. I, I stopped reading the Eagle a long time ago. <laughs> I, just can't. I can't. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I'm glad you do. Come well, in. <laughs> I, you know, and I'm a paying subscriber to the Eagle and I, yeah. I do that because I think that, um, we do need a paper of record in the area. 
Um, and it's a shame that the newspaper industry as a whole, and the news industry, because I'm the news industry, but I'm not paper. Um, it's a shame that the news industry is suffering so badly right now uh, because there's, it's not easy to to get the message out. I mean, if, if, a, if an outfit like The Intercept, with the backing that they have, has a hard time getting their stories out, how hard is it for a little little local you know outfit? Um, and there are a few in the Berkshires. There are a few you know independents uh, in the Berkshires, and it's it's a challenge. It's a challenge to to get people to understand that you're not just muckraking. I mean, you're not just. I mean, I mean, you are muckraking because that's a job of, of a reporter, <clears throat> but you're also trying to um, trying to make sure that that there's a level playing field. I mean, that's that's what the press is supposed to do. It's supposed to, you know, supposed to. Yes, those are very, yes, supposed to. Those two words are, yeah, yeah really relevant. Um, yeah, what the, what the press, yes, I think small papers actually do a better job uh, of that. Um, I think, you know, and, and I do, I do believe they, they should be largely, they, they should be supported. Um, so for local community news, yeah, I agree with you on that one. Um, on the bigger front, the national front, I, you know, I, I did a, I did a training once for the green, when I was a green for the green party, uh, uh convention. And uh, I think it was called, uh, oh, I can't remember what I called it, but it was basically like, you know, where, where should you get your news? You know, where should you, you know, and I, and the bottom line is you need to find outlets that are somewhat aligned with, you know, your belief system, I think. Uh, you need to look at the other ones also. Like, you know, it's not a bad thing to look at Fox and then, you know, other, but, but it's helpful to go to some outlets that are, are not owned again by the big conglomerates and, you know, search around and, and watch and learn from, from different places and different people. And, you know, I found a few sources. I, I'm, a, I'm not a big tech person, but I happen to have a lot of really smart Facebook friends. So I uh, watch a lot of the uh, feeds and the, and the videos that are, um, that are sent my way. And I've, I've just learned that there's certain people who seem to really check their sources and there are certain sources that seem pretty reliable. So I've, I've got a little, you know, handful that I like to, are my go-tos for right. news. Um, well, you know, I, where, I'm, where I'm going to get a viewpoint that I actually can stomach. Yeah. No, I, I uh, you know, there's a lot of news outlets that I, I, I subscribe to or listen to, uh, like the Eagle, where it's basically, I don't have a lot of time. And I have to get my heart rate up. They say, you know, every day you should get your heart rate up 30 minutes. And I figure I can either go out and get some exercise or I can read the Eagle. Uh, and and <laughs> that will get my blood pressure up there <clears throat> usually. Um, yeah. So, and, and, you know, Fox and, and MSNBC, because, you know, for me, um, you know, an hour of Rachel Maddow is like, you know, the scene in uh, Clockwork Orange where they're, you know, they've got... Uh, the protagonist or the, the the antiheroes eyelids pinned open with with tweezers or whatever yeah and it's Showing just this, yeah, yeah it's make it stop yeah. make make her make her stop um yeah she's she, i don't know what happened once upon a time there was this online radio uh network called uh air america and it was it was uh rachel maddow and it was um uh former uh, saturday night live uh, senator who's gone bye-bye um Oh, uh, Franken. Well, Franken, thank you. Um, late in the day here. Uh, and, and a few and, others. And by the way, that's a damn travesty, that Al Franken thing, for the love of God. Thank you. I think Kirsten Gillibrand was the one that went after him with the whole Me Too thing because 
somebody, you know, complained about something he did in comedy years before. Anyway, I'm I'm sorry that one's no. such a one with me. Well, it's <laughs> it's I, a, yeah. I'm political and I do some comedy. That one really pissed me off. But anyway, yeah, I, you know what happened? You know what happened? The script happened. That's what happened to Matto. That's what happens to you know when you get to a certain level. You are, you know, you are all of a sudden no longer really a reporter. You are a, you know, here, read this. You're, you know, we will dictate what you read. And I think that's what happened to uh, Maddow and, and others. I mean, I've, uh, I've, yeah, I mean, and, I used to love her too. I used to and, love listening yeah. to her perspective. Yeah, she's, she's a brilliant, brilliant thinker. No question yeah. about it. It's, it's just, I don't know if she's allowed to do any of that anymore. Um, but she gets paid real well, so maybe I should do that for a couple of years and then come back to this. Um, <laughs> That's the thing, you know, and always, you know. Do you buy into that? Are you going to take? Are you going to get? Here's the thing: you can't get clean by doing something dirty, and and mm. everybody wants you to do something just a little dirty when you're getting started. It's like the mob. Whether, yeah, yeah. Right? It's like the mob. They make sure that they've got something on you that they can hold over you, yeah. and once they got that thing, boom, you are theirs. Yeah. Huh. Or or just or just you know you're making a shit ton of money and if you want to keep doing that you're gonna follow you know you're gonna follow these you know ABC and B yeah you know you just you need to sell your soul Chuck Cobb was another awful one I, I used to watch all the time and man I like remember the moments with the where Chuck just turned yeah. into this, like it was like what what well, is happening yeah so anyway I, even I, in uh, comedy you've got uh, Dennis Miller who used to be on Saturday Night Live and yeah. I remember when he turned and I cannot find this video online to save my life I've looked and looked and looked and looked uh, there are some um, you can go on YouTube and you can find some partial episodes where uh, Dennis Miller, uh, who used to do the news on on yeah. SNL, and he goes yeah. on the onto the Daily Show, and the first time he does, after he does that that weird switch, from being kind of a progressive thinker to a, a hard right, uh, um, I can't say the word. I, well, I can, but I'm not gonna. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he went hard right. He really? went hard. He oh, went yeah. hard right. And um and John I haven't seen or heard anything from him in years. John Stewart asked him, and this, well, this was years ago. This was this was at least a decade ago. And John Stewart okay. looks at him point blank and says, "Sir Dennis, what do they have on you?" <laughs> and you know, it's said with a certain amount of comedy, but there's this look in both Stewart's eye and Miller's eye, and yeah. you realize that it's not. He's not kidding. It's not really <laughs> just all fun and games here. And yeah, you know, Dennis Miller goes, ha, 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 ha. Um, but you know, <laughs> so you know, I think I think what should and this is me going from uh, um a reporter, you know, straight journalist to uh, analyst here, which I try not to do in one segment, but you know, damn it, it's my show and I'll do what I want. So um so enjoy the power man right before they, they <laughs> before they offer me those big checks um right so no the uh the thing is i think that what should really uh, upset and offend uh people most of all is that there could be such concentrations of power that they could bend the will of everyone in an entire industry that they could oh, yeah. take an entire sector uh, of the economy and, and and the only industry mentioned by the way the only industry mentioned in the constitution only the press is mentioned so that to me is like okay shucks you mentioned it the constant 
in the Constitution, that's going to be the first thing that get that gets corrupted. And 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 sure enough, there it is. Um, but that should outrage people. That uh, that you know that somebody like Jamal Khashoggi, you know, yeah. the Washington uh, Washington Post correspondent and CNN correspondent uh, who was murdered, yeah. uh, the yeah. CIA, CIA believes by uh, the royal Saudi family. Yeah. And ML- MLB in, in the most in the most horrible way one can imagine. Also, worth yeah, yeah, being chopped up uh, into little pieces and carried out in in attaché bags. That's just that's just yeah. you know that's not a way you want to go. Um, and, and by the way, likely likely while he was still alive, they started. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that we have we have an administration that would ignore that, that would just you know, I mean, silence and you and the news media that has forgotten it. Right. Yeah. So there's a moment of silence uh, for for journalism there, but you do have people like you said, Ryan Grimm, Crystal Ball over at uh, on the on the Rising at the Hill with um, yeah, and Crystal, with Crystal was another cigar. one who had a a big uh, yeah, she had a big apparently you know some sort of uh, I guess somebody outed some pictures of her or something. I, I learned watching her, and uh, she also has a great. I mean, if you want to pull up. Uh, if anybody wants to, they can pull up a great segment where she actually talks about when she worked for, was it MSNBC where it she was. came from, I think? Yeah. Uh, she actually talks about um, them coming in, talking about the scripting stuff, them coming in and like basically telling her, yeah, like, oh, here's what you're going to say. And also she talks about um, she was covering the Clinton campaign, I think in 2016, it must have been 2016. And I guess she said or did something remotely negative or, you know, a little digging question. And they came back to the network and basically said, yeah, you need to chat with this chick because we're not going to give you any more interviews if that shit keeps up kind of thing. So um, she's got a great video on that where, um, yeah, which is, you know, again, this is part of what made me gravitate toward other sources. And, And also, you know, Bernie Sanders opened my eyes to the um, extent to which Corporations have taken over this country. I mean, the, you know, the banking industry, pharmaceutical industry, the fossil fuel industry, it's just, they have their hands in everything. They are really controlling, you know, every, I mean, the two, the 2008 bailout of banks by Obama. Look, I'm no economist, but I'm sitting here going, excuse me, but didn't they all kind of lie, cheat, intentionally give all these mortgages to people that they knew they couldn't pay back, yada, yada? Didn't they do all of that? And you're, you're bailing them out? Because yeah. why? Oh, if we don't, the, you know, we can't let the big banks fail. Why? Now, again, I am not an economist, but if a big bank fails, doesn't the little bank just pick up the slack? Doesn't your little local bank step in? I mean, I don't know. All I know is Iceland let it happen. They let their economy fail. They let their banks fail. They had a year or two, maybe struggle, got back on their feet. And by the way, they went back and jailed all those bankers. Meanwhile, right. in America, our banks get bailed out. People lose their homes by the thousands or millions. I have no idea. And, exec- and, and, exe- yeah. and executives get, executives get uh, you know, appointed, appointed to, uh, to political positions. Yeah. And bonuses too. Yeah, and bonuses. So anyway, yeah, we're, you know, so I'm a, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's like the Matrix. On the one hand, I'm kind of glad I'm woke. On the other hand, some days are just really hard to, you know, to look at what's going on. And and, um, and every time, you know, because I have moments where I just think, yeah, I'm done. Like, I'm an old activist. I'm tired. Let the millennials take over. I'm, like, ready to just, you know, 
kick it um, and just sit back and like, you know, have a margarita on a beach and let other people do the activism. But then I look at old Bernie. So Bernie is about to turn 79, I think, kind of like beginning of September. He has his mm. birthday coming up. And I'm sitting there going, you know, I look back at this picture of him being chained to a black woman um, at a civil rights protest in 1963. That's two years before I was born. And so I look at this guy and go, oh, shit. I, I, I cannot justify quitting when he's still going. It, it, it's embarrassing. I can't, you know, I mean, I'm, I have to keep going. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess much as I have my days where I just want to, you know, wallow in despair, despair can't be an option. I give myself 24 to 48 hours of despair and then I pick myself back up and I go, you know, looking for other people to organize with me and to, you know, help do what we need to, to change the system. There's a lot that needs changing. We need to look at our damn elections. We need some clean elections. You know, Jimmy Carter said like 10 years ago, maybe longer, the Carter Foundation, one of the things, they do a lot of great things, but one of the things they do is they monitor elections in other countries to make sure they're clean elections. He said many years ago, the United States would never pass the same litmus, litmus tests that they use in other countries. And, you know, I am, I am very concerned about that. I, I, we need, to, we need a, a multi-pronged approach. I want to get ranked choice voting passed. I think that will help. We need to get rid of gerrymandering. We need some public financing for elections. We need like limits on what people can spend. And let's give the public some public vouchers, some vouchers to spend. Let's not spend two years with candidates running. You know, in other countries, you, you actually campaign for like four months right. before an election, right. not like two years. Let's do that. How about that? Hey, guess what? Maybe we'll get some work done. Hey, guess what? Maybe the Senate wouldn't have left to go on vacation during a pandemic with no, <laughs> passing nothing to help, again, the American people. They went on, I couldn't believe they went on recess. Bye. When people are just, uh, it's unbelievable. I know unbelievable. the uninsurance, the the, un, the unemployment insurance extension just, just ended, but we'll be back in a little bit. You know, I think what I, what I would like to see, um, what I would like to see most happen if we had uh, much, much compressed campaigning like you said four months or whatever i would like to see the the legislators remember they're, they're just supposed to be legislators in, in congress i'd like to see them actually writing and editing and working on legislation instead of just taking a manila folder from a lobbying corporation flipping the pages and saying yeah that looks good and then just passing yeah. legislation written by the very very people that are supposed to be being regulated um, by the yeah. by the agencies overseen by the either Congress or the, or the executive branch. It is absurd yeah. that we would allow uh, corporations and lobbying, uh, you know, lobbying lobbyists to write legislation. It's just it's it's and, and then what are the, the legislators doing? They're out campaigning. So when do they have yeah. time to look at these, you know, 300, 400, 500 page litigious documents? Um, yeah, it's just it's it's it's, it's and, and by the way, when we're making a package, of, you know, we're trying to, you know, do something to help people. I am tired of seeing these mammoth packages that I mean, people just, you know what they say about, you know, you never want to see laws, laws or sausage made um, both just as, as rudely, I guess. But you know what? In a situation like this, can we just make a bill that covers what the American people need? Can we not have slush funds of trillions of dollars for corporations? Like, why do we keep, why is it acceptable 
to to keep throwing all of this in the mix. What you know, I just yeah, if I were a legislator, that's where I'd start. You know what? One thing at a time. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I loathe, I loathe the fact that we've never managed to get the line item veto. We've never managed to get that. And you'll have massive amounts of uh, saying, you know, very necessary funding being held up because somebody at the last minute sneaks in this, this poison pill into the legislation yeah. that they know, they know the other party is going to say hell no. And then guess what? They get to blame the other party for holding up important legislation. Um, and it's yeah. just, it's, it's or, this or is... signing or signing off on something like the crime bill because it has like the violence against women act in there, you know, right. it, it right. forces you to go, Oh, any, meeny, miny, mo, or you know what? Yeah. So you, so you have to take the good with the bad. I'm tired of that. Yeah. All of these yeah, things yeah. are so, they seem so simple, don't they? They seem so common sense. <laughs> I'll tell you in 2024, I want our biggest argument to be with the Democrats, whether it should be AOC and Crystal Crystal Ball. I really would love to see Crystal Ball run. She's you know one of the sharpest bland damn minds in politics anywhere, and she's not even yeah. in politics. Uh, whether yeah. it should be her or Brianna Joy, uh, because ah, right. Maybe. Wouldn't Free she Free. be the yeah. bomb? Oh my gosh! Yeah. I heard her on um, Michael Moore's Rumble uh, about a yeah. couple couple episodes ago, and yeah. she was on fire. Well, she's always on fire, but she was she yeah. was especially on fire. And she just you know knows everything. Like the other two, um, you know, Ball and and Acacia Cortez, she doesn't need a script. She doesn't need a teleprompter. Yeah. These people can yeah. just run with it and they can just go boom, 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 boom. And you've got more facts and figures and statistics and case studies. And they just know it all. They've got it all there. I would love yeah. to have somebody of that mental acumen in the White House for the first time since I, since Carter, probably. Yeah, I, I am, um, again, I, I am hopeful because I see this young generation coming up. I am hopeful because I see progressives starting to win across the country. I know that's the future of this party. We just need these old Dinos to either, you know, die off or go find something else to do. Uh, go, go vacation, go to Disneyland. I don't know, but we, we need, yeah, we need to kind of get this old, uh, guard out. And, uh, I think, uh, yeah. I, I, so I, so I'm, I'm hopeful because of that. Yeah. I'm hopeful because of that, because I really do uh, see that even though, you know, some people like Alan Sharkock can't see it. Um, <laughs> uh, by the way, his goon squad went after Morse. I, I, I absolutely was so disgusted listening to the roundtable when that Morse story first broke and how they went after him, knowing all the while that no investigation had been, that no reporter had really reported. And to, yeah, to just have to listen to... Uh, and uh, them uh, crucify this man with no evidence just makes me insane. I started a petition to have a progressive voice on the uh, roundtable, which um, Alan Shartok will surely never want to do, uh, but I think it's desperately needed. And um, anyway, I, I I can only even take. Well, they haven't asked me yet. They haven't asked me. <laughs> so. Oh, oh, I've offered to. I guess you know we just you know we're not going to make the cut. What can I say, Jason? <laughs> All right, well, I enjoy this program. I enjoy this program. But... Thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll talk again. Stay well. 
and, you know, live to rock another day. That's what I say. <laughs> you too, man. Good talking to you. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, writer, editor, and producer, Jason Velasquez. As always, our music was by the Iron Age Mystics. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Growl. Take care. Uh-huh. 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 Uh-huh.